Hey everybody, welcome to the EquipCast. My name is Jim Jansen and I'm your host. And we got a really fun conversation for you today. Whitney, the producer, who is always behind the scenes, we turn on her microphone. Whitney and I have a conversation about the thresholds of conversion and discipleship. Like, how do you actually meet people where they're at? Right, that's that's a little the buzz phrase around evangelization. Well, we have to meet people where they're at. Today, Whitney and I dive into what does that actually mean? This is a great conversation for a youth ministry team, parish leadership team, pastoral council, a family, any group of people who are dedicated to sharing their faith in whatever context, in whatever stage of journey you're trying to serve people, you're going to love today's conversation. Take a listen. Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha, designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. Whitney Bradley. Welcome to the EquipCast, kind of. I mean, you're always actually on the EquipCast. You're just not on. Rarely on this end. Yeah, right. you're not. Yeah, you usually don't turn your microphone on. Yeah, true. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> okay, so this is fun. We had a uh, colleague, Jody Phillips, a little shout out there, who suggested we have to do an episode on the thresholds of conversion and discipleship. I, I would be surprised if even like a half a day, an hour goes by and somebody on the team isn't kind of referencing the process of evangelization. It's a tool that you found particularly helpful. So you're kind of like, ooh, I would love to talk about the thresholds of conversion, share some stories. So that's what we're going to talk about. But before we dive in, because you did a marvelous pro-life episode, so people know a little bit of your story, but Whitney, the producer, tell us something about your conversion that people don't know yet. Well, for my conversion, there's not actually a lot to tell. I think in my first, the first episode, I mentioned that I'm a cradle Catholic in the best sense of that term. Mm. term. There's never been a time that I haven't known that I had a good and loving God as a father and that he was taking care of me. And so maybe something to tell you guys about, because I guess we're always in a process of reconversion, would just be something within my prayer recently. I was blessed to be with one of the parish leadership teams recently at a uh, staff offsite where they were talking about this concept of journey. And um, Father Connect, who I know listens to this, was the hey Father, hi <laughs> Father Connect, was the uh, like retreat master, and he in adoration gave us a little bit of a talk on being on a journey, and he used one of the Psalms that. You're a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And he was mentioning that lamplight doesn't cast a very far amount of light. Yeah. It's it's not like that cool high beam like spotlight I have. Yeah. For and spotting I, records. I think I had never, like in my modern sense, had always been like, yeah, like a flashlight. And so I can see way down the road. And I'm usually comfortable in that space, not knowing a whole lot of what's to come, but knowing the next couple of steps. And just recently, I've been very much feeling like, Lord, I don't, I barely even know the next step. Mm -hmm. Like with all the journey of faith that's happening and mm -hmm. 
um, just changes that are happening among all the people that we are blessed to work with. So he's just really calling me to a deeper sense of trust in him. Like there is a path. You Mm -hmm. may not be able to see it. Put one step, one foot in front of the other. So not saying I'm perfect at it, but it was just really encouraging to know like, okay, he's on that journey with me. He's walking with me. I don't know where we're going, but we are going somewhere. Right. And it's a lamp unto my feet. I can see the next step. Right. Even if I can't see 50 yards ahead. Right. Right. Oh, that's good. That's a nice setup here as we talk about journeys and kind of faith. Like we want to talk a little bit about people's personal journey of faith, right? The the thresholds that people go through in the kind of ongoing process of uh, of conversion and of becoming a disciple and growing as a disciple. Give us a little bit about your first exposure to this. Because it was something that you were like, oh, this is great. I love this. Tell everybody a little bit about why you kind of latched onto this, and then I can give some of the nerdy background. That's a great question. So before the last year and a half, for you listeners, I was not on the parish support team. I was the coordinator of the Respect Life Apostolate, and I was an Office of Evangelization and Catechesis groupie. So I had an office. But you hit it well because your office was just right next door. So we didn't know that you were creepily yeah. hanging around. And I'm known for being natural. able to hear things that are being said in the office. So I would just wander by and ask questions. What's going on there? Tell me more. And so I was working on, I don't remember what it was particularly, but something in the pro-life movement. And I was trying to articulate for people that sometimes just coming out with what we see as the blatant truth, like it's a child, it's a baby, doesn't quite work. And mm-hmm. we have to learn to meet people where they're at. So Jen suggested, Jen Mosher said, why don't you look at these thresholds and just see what you think and see if you can maybe adapt them for the pro-life movement. And you may have heard me mention them. They're actually in that previous episode that I was on because mm-hmm. I did yeah. adapt them and they were super useful. But as I began to think about also, not just in the pro-life movement, but my own life and experience of wanting others to love Jesus like I love him, of the ways that I've tried to bring them along, and mostly the ways that I've failed. You know, I've been very blessed to not have anybody receive me hostily, but I just wasn't giving them what they needed in the moment. And so I was able to see, oh, they weren't at this stage, they were at that stage, and I should have done this rather than that. And so it was just really inspiring to me in that way. That's awesome. When you're noticing, because I got to hear some of the stories about the way you were taking it and adapting it for your work, that is kind of like why we developed it. So, right, like I spend a lot of time in church basements in the best way. I don't know if there's like a bad way, but trying to teach people about evangelization. And as we did, we noticed a couple of things. We noticed that there were a fair number of misconceptions and that a lot of people were using the language was a little bit confused. So I'll give an example here. Like a lot of people, when they when they said evangelization, what they were really talking about was hospitality, kindness, and just attentiveness when new people would enter their lives or, or show up at some level in the faith community. And other people, when they were talking about evangelization, they meant like good, meaty substance. They meant what you know the church often calls catechesis, teaching people about the faith, you know, Catholic radio and form.org. What we realized is two things. One, people didn't mean the same thing by language. They were talking about one point in what the church refers to as a process with several stages, and they were only kind of fixated on one point, usually their favorite, and that that would cause a problem because they would struggle then to 
like you said, meet people where they're at. So with the help of Andy Deka and, you know, stealing the work of God bless Sherry Waddell and Steve Shadrach and some old focus friends, we smashed together a couple of resources and created the thresholds of conversion and discipleship. Basically, it was a game. We created a an interactive game where people could self-discover this process of evangelization. I love, I, you know, I have my master's in theology and I love all the nerdy church language like mystagogy and initiatory catechesis. But most people's eyes kind of glaze over when those words Because I don't know what those things mean. Yeah. Sorry, Rachel Gifford, if you're listening. Yeah. So like those, <laughs> like most people's eyes glaze over and like just to like translate it into ordinary language and turn it into a game where we're just telling stories about people's lives and people start to say, oh my gosh, yeah, like that's my story or that's my coworker. And people can start to recognize this process of conversion, the, the process of evangelization that the church has articulated. And they can begin to say like, oh, that's how I need to engage my fallen away sibling, neighbor, et cetera. So we just want to dive into this today. We're going to kind of move from least open, least receptive to the church, you know, a very kind of passive disposition uh, in terms of the way someone is relating to Jesus, the way they're relating to the church. What's kind of the first threshold? Yes. So we call the first threshold trust. What do you mean by trust? Give us a definition, Winnie. Okay. The definition is, and you can find these, as Jim would like to say, in the show notes. Uh, We'll link them on equip.archomaha.org. I'm a good producer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the first threshold is trust. And that definition for that is a person has a positive association with Jesus or an individual Catholic and may be asking questions out of passive curiosity. Now you kind of hit that passive. I notice you kind of like, you kind of hit the (laughs) passive there. Give us a picture. Like, what does this look like? What does it sound like in real life? People who are at this threshold of trust. Yeah, there's actually a couple of things to impact. So there's actually a, th- a quote-unquote threshold before this that we would call pre-trust. Right. We've probably all experienced that. Someone who finds out you're Catholic and puts a wall up. Shocking, right? People who don't <laughs> trust you. Right. Yeah. They're not even on the thresholds at all. And the you would treat them the same way you treat someone in trust. And we'll get to that in a minute. But just a, a slight caveat. These are the people, you know, throughout my life, I've had a lot of experiences with people in this trust category. I seem to be fairly good at winning trust. You know, they're the people who walk up to you and they say, so you're Catholic, dot, dot, dot. And then they ask like a billion questions. Uh, And that can be really exciting, but it's typically like this definition says a passive curiosity. They're not asking out of a place where they really care what the answer is. They're interested in the answer, but it's not going to make a difference to their life. They're not going to make a change to their life. Right. There's it. some degree of interest, but it's not particularly personal yet. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. And, you know, they may not even be asking questions. This could just be someone who enjoys your company but doesn't really want to talk about the faith. Yeah. I remember back in my missionary days, this was huge as we were uh, beginning our outreach to Division I athletes. Very narrow windows of opportunity to connect with them. You, know, you could often uh, have lunch at the training table, which had the best food uh, on all of campus, by the way. So you could have lunch at the training table and you could occasionally, uh, with the you know access pass from a coach, you could stand on the sidelines for practice and things. 
But your first conversation was not, hey, man, do you want to be in Bible study? Like you had some trust to build yeah. up. And there were some people who, yeah, started with like a, you know, I'm not, not hanging around with the weird religious guy. You started with a deficit of trust. Yeah. And then there were others where you were, okay, you had just a little bit of trust because they liked the team chaplain or they maybe trusted the coach, but you had to deepen and build that trust so that you could further the relationship and help move them on to the second threshold. Before we do that, like, what do you do here? I mean, and we're going to make the case that you evangelize all the way through the process, but how do you evangelize in the trust phase? Yeah. So it's not really going to feel like evangelization as such. And I want to give maybe a little disclaimer here. It's okay to not talk about Jesus. <laughs> and, and Some that, people are like, oh, that's weird. I thought I was listening to the Equipcast. <laughs> right. What am I? It can feel like denying Jesus in some way to leave that out. But it's really about getting past those barriers and just showing them that you're a real human being with real interests and who can be a friend. So that's your number one thing. Just be a friend yeah. to them. Friendship, kindness. Yeah. There's no us or them. There's no, you're living a lifestyle that's totally antithetical to what I believe. There's just, let's find a common interest and let's bond over that. Yeah. This is like, I would say like acts of service. So, mm -hmm. right. If you regularly go to a restaurant, it's tipping well to the, you know, to the, to your regular waiter or waitress. It's shoveling your neighbor's driveway. It's just smiling and attending to the people in front of you in a human way. Yeah. And is that like, not that the whole thing we need to like for people who are still scandalized, like, I can't believe they said, <laughs> don't talk about Jesus. It's like, well, we didn't say that, but we said is like, there's something about the new evangelization that is a little different than the first evangelization. And that is, I think I'll steal from uh, Deacon James Keating, that it, it's as though the, the church were winning the hand uh, like a groom to a new bride. The new evangelization now it's kind of like trying to win back the heart of a bitter, disgruntled wife. Mm -hmm. Our culture has, for many of them, they would say, been there, done that, tried the religious thing, not for me. And the patience and self-sacrificing love we need to show to win people back when they're in this threshold, when they barely trust us or don't trust us at all, we need to begin with humility and service and friendship and kindness, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the place, yeah, to talk about your secular interests, but also you really just want to win their trust. So this is like making and keeping promises. And it can be as simple as yeah. when they invite you to something, say yes and show up. Yeah. That Even if it's trust. not, yeah, yeah, as long as it's not sinful. Right, right. Yeah. With but that like, small caveat, right? Yeah. You don't have to do anything against your own conscience. But like if they invite you to dinner or to a party with their friends, that's not a like rager. <laughs> like, yeah, it's no. like, yeah. especially you know? if it's maybe beyond your preference. And yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Show up in their lives. And in particular, don't be judgmental. I've had a lot of conversations with friends about relationships where they're mm. living together. And it's it's a very awkward place to be in the middle of because yeah. they know my beliefs. I'm not hiding from them who I am, but I'm not going to set them or expect them to meet the same bar that I expect someone who's living an authentically Catholic or wants to live an authentically Catholic life. Right. I mean, there's a there's a commentator, uh, Kerry Newhoff, Christian podcast, love it, great great man, Canadian pastor, and he says, you know, it is kind of odd that we would expect a non Christian 
to act like a Christian. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's just be honest. Like the teachings of Jesus are countercultural. They are beyond our natural reason, oftentimes, not against it, but just oftentimes beyond it. And so to expect non-Christians to act like Christians is just weird. It's just <laughs> foolish. And what we're talking about is people who are, regardless of what label they might claim, regardless of what institution they might have been baptized into, whatever, these are people who would not self-identify as a practicing Christian. Maybe they would, but like they clearly do not trust Jesus and the church, or that trust is just beginning. So to be clear, I wouldn't give them advice against the things I believe. I wouldn't but I, yeah. but I do, in a sense, not hold you're not them to starting. that same bar. Yeah, I'm but not you're starting not starting there. there. Yeah. Yeah. It, and then I know you probably want to move on, but there's one last thing that yeah. I really would say, because this was really good for me to learn, especially with all those people who come to me and ask questions because they knew I wouldn't judge them, but I would give them honest answers. So they'd come with all these curious questions. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you want to know Jesus? I'm going to give it to all of you. And I was misidentifying where they were at. Mm. And we'll learn. I was thinking they were in the seeking stage when they're just in the trust stage. So what you should do there, though, is if someone's just in trust, they're not, they have passive curiosity, they're not actually looking to make a change to their life, you need to match their curiosity, which means definitely give them answers, but keep them short and quick and then ask them more questions than they ask you. Yeah. What's uh, what's behind this question? Why did you want to know? And just like get to know what's on their heart. Right, because there is a a transition that happens in the process of conversion where people move from trust to openness. That's the next one. That movement is often based off of both the strength of the relationship you've developed, a little bit of an awareness of the unique belief and kindness that you have as a Christian, and now a felt personal need. So Whitney, why don't you give us the definition? What do we mean by openness? Yes. So openness is a person admits to a general need or desire for personal spiritual change. This is not the same as commitment to specific changes. Ooh, okay. So break that break that open for us. Oftentimes we find a person will hit a point in their life where they're asking more questions. Sometimes It really is just spurred because you went deeper with them. Uh, Mm -hmm. But oftentimes it's there because something major is happening in their lives. Someone close to me had a transplant surgery. And this is one of those like life-changing moments, right? It's a major surgery. And after going through it and the recovery and all of that, he said to me, Whitney, I just feel like something is missing. And they didn't mean their other kidney. No, definitely not. Or actually, he didn't lose a kidney. He now has three. Uh, But um, Just want to clarify that. I feel like something's missing. I was like, well, yeah, they cut out your kidney. Technically, yes. Okay, Um, sorry. In my heart, I feel like there's something missing. Yeah, and at the moment, I didn't know how to engage with that. I didn't know what to say. But this person was really in a stage of openness. Right, it was personal. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I appreciate the definition you shared. That's different than a, com- a specific commitment to change, right? Like the non-spiritual is like, I don't like being out of shape. But that is not the same thing as a commitment to work out. Right, right. And saying something's missing isn't saying I'm committing to finding out what that is. Yeah, yeah. But it does mean Filling that there's, there's an awareness. <laughs> yeah, it does mean there's an awareness there. Right. And I look back on my life and there's lots of people who just have had some really deep moments and and I've been blessed to be part 
of mm-hmm. them with them. And before the threshold, you know, you you sit with them, you be with them, and that's a good Christian attitude to mm-hmm. have. But I didn't know that there was something more that I could offer them in that moment. Yeah. But, you know, our presence is often, I think, the biggest key there, a uh, good listening ear. I mean, I found in college ministry, it was often a breakup. I think in post-college ministry, it's often death of a loved one, unexpected, <laughs> unwanted career change. There's a number of things that that come in that where people, they do a little soul searching. And if you are in someone's life and you've developed trust, now they're like, you know, I don't want to be that guy who wakes up, you know, doesn't wake up someday after a heart attack and found that I, I spent all my life working and didn't attend to my family. And there's just a little crack of openness that I'd like something to be different. Mm-hmm. Anything particular just in terms of the terms of the openness there? I have a couple of thoughts, but like how you how you evangelize uh, to people at that threshold. Oh yeah, so I would say first and foremost, continue to be non-judgmental and just to really take an interest in their life, ask more questions, be with them in the moment, like Jim was saying. But this is also the time where, when it's appropriate, you can start to share a bit of yourself more mm-hmm. more pointedly. Again, you're not hiding in the trust phase that you know and love Jesus. But this is a point where you can really say, you know, Jesus has made a difference to my life. And let me tell you how. And I would say like, I mean, that's like a little testimony. And I feel like that tool, whether it's some people refer to as a witness, a testimony, it's just a story. But it's a story where there's a rhyme where the Lord did something for me. And there's a little bit of rhyme. Let's say like this person is anxious about their professional future, or they're struggling financially, or they're grieving. Don't be surprised if there's a rhyme between the way the Lord has worked in your life and the way he is now poised and desires to work in your friend's life. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that's not that we're going to prescribe that he's going to do the same thing in their life that he did in ours, but we shouldn't be surprised because the Lord is like, yeah, I did that in your life and I want you to tell them about how I loved you through that. Right. And this is often so much better than the trite platitudes that we typically offer. Oh, gosh. Gag me. <laughs> yeah. Right. I would just say, don't be afraid to pray with them. Um, they yeah. can say no. Just ask permission. Yeah. If you ask permission, it is extraordinarily rare that someone says, no, I do not want you to pray with me or for me. Mm-hmm. And then that is a great way to explicitly be able to invite the Lord in. And it's a great way to verify that they are indeed open, right? Have I properly assessed where this person is at? It's like, well, would you mind if I pray for you for a little bit now? And if they say yes, that's a really good sign that they are indeed open. Just, you know, try and not make it a 15-minute prayer. like Right, right. Okay, so first trust, then openness. Next kind of stage here is what we call seeking. Whitney, give us a definition of seeking. Yes. So seeking is a person moves from being passive to actively seeking to know the God who is calling him or her. The seeker is engaged in a spiritual quest. I love this. Actively seeking. Big, big word there. And they're engaged in a quest. I like that. I like that language. Winnie, what does this look like in, in real life? Yeah, this is the person who really wants to know if Jesus can make a difference in their own life. Like I said earlier, I would confuse the people who were curious about my faith for being in seeking. They're not, no longer simply curious. They're asking the question, 
do the answers to all of my questions make a difference to my life? To my questions, yeah. Yeah. You might find them hanging out in the Barnes & Noble self-help aisle. Right, exactly. Or I was telling Jim earlier, this is when people tend to recommend to me all of the KVSS local radio station, but all of the Catholic personalities on radio that they hear. Like, have you heard Trent Horn? Oh my gosh. And I'm like, yeah, he's great. Yeah, I don't think he's the end all be all. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Trent. Trent's probably, I'm sure Trent's a listener. So <laughs> totally. We love you. No, I mean, it, there really is like, there is a key role that is like specialized Catholic resources, um, for lack of a better term, apologetics can play to remove obstacles. Because I can say when I was at this stage, it was like, okay, I wanted the Lord and I was starting to recognize he was indeed what I was looking for, but there were a few obstacles that were holding me up. And so the attentive listening of my friends, God bless Father Joe Irwin, priest of Oklahoma City, Chuck Hill, and a number of others who were like listening to me, present in my life as a friend. They could see that I was starting to seek and they were able to answer some of the questions I had and remove some of those obstacles to keep my journey from getting hung up. So again, listening is always a pretty key key uh, skill, but you can really help evangelize people in this place by beginning to help remove obstacles and by helping them see that what they are indeed looking for is found in a relationship with Christ and with the church. Mm-hmm. And if you personally don't have all the answers to the questions, that's totally okay. Because I think one of the best things to do yeah. at this point is to invite them into a community of disciples. So yes. invite them to start meeting you with your friends like see let them see what your life is like when you have these genuine friends who love jesus as well as each other yeah and that's it thank you for saying that. i mean that was part of my own story it was part of a small group bible study a, a community that was part of that it's also worth saying that having a community be a part of this it's one it's safe now there's there's a pretty strong relational foundation of trust so you're able to kind of mediate that and draw them into a community But oftentimes, those of us who have a comfort level and we can just kind of like maybe we're a little bit more extroverted or or maybe we're quieter, but we're we're very good at winning trust because we're quiet and we listen to people, whatever whatever it is, oftentimes this is where you're like, yeah, but I need somebody who is thinks a little bit quicker on their feet and somebody who's a little bit more knowledgeable about this person's questions. And that's why, right, like evangelization is like, oh, it's it really is a team sport. And being able to do it in community very quickly, the, the value of having a community of people that can share the witness and can help support and pray begins to make all the difference in people actually growing and coming to a point of, dun, 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 next threshold, decision. Whitney, talk to us about decision. So decision is the decision in faith to follow Jesus as an obedient disciple in the midst of the church, which brings about new life. So like classic example of this, this is St. Augustine on his knees, famous in the confession. Augustine is part of, if you don't know his story, he's part of a Christian community, kind of, right? Or he is socially engaged in this Christian community. He is not an obedient disciple. But he's been seeking, he's been learning, he's in this community, he feels like he's a part of the community, he feels welcomed and received there, and he has this famous dramatic moment where he 
decides to be obedient and to follow Jesus as Lord unreservedly. And it changes everything. So I would say besides St. Augustine in my own life, there's a couple of, there's a couple of key, key moments here. I came to a point in my life where I had walked away from my Catholic faith pretty significantly in my college years. Never, of course, changed the label, just changed the uh, behavior, toyed around with different labels, agnostic, whatever. But I came to a point where I was reconvicted that Jesus was real, that he wanted to be in relationship with me, and that that relationship in particular was waiting for me in the Eucharist. And it was like, wasn't quite St. Augustine, but I remember getting down on my knees and making a spiritual communion and inviting the Lord into my heart, you know, in, in my own words and, and mind, just like, just like at mass, I want you to, I want you to come, come to me. That was a decision for me because my friends were having, it was part of a, a social community where there was a conversion happening, but I, I kind of made a decision at that, at that point. And I was walking the fence, but before then I was kind of like, oh, well, no foot in both worlds. And I kind of made a decision that I was like, no, like I'm, it's again, it's a classic repent and believe. I think you see this, if I can offer a shout out, a lot of times in the the CEC or Curcio or like for young people, a tech retreat where people kind of decide. And sometimes there's even little mini rituals, you know, where people like, you know, they'll kind of like pick up a little memento cross. They'll make a decision, come forward, let people pray with them. And those things are beautiful. Did you have anyone accompany you through that moment? Not at that particular moment, but I have been blessed to walk with people, to like kind of tearfully, me and them, just for anybody wondering, <laughs> both of us weeping to just pray like, okay, Jesus, I just want to start over and I'm sorry, but you can have the keys to my life. So I have been blessed several times to be present with individuals and to walk them through kind of that decision moment. Yeah, because I, I ask because I guess I do know a few stories that are similar to yours where like a Steubenville or something like that. Right. Conferences and retreats are often designed to facilitate decision. This, yeah, this right. conversion moment. Yep. Um, but I also ask because I know one of the best practices is to really preach the kerygma into someone's yes. life, to really give them a moment to say yes. Like you specifically want to ask them like, here's what you're being offered. Is it a yes or is it a no? Let yeah. your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Yeah, I, I used to do that. I mean, it was a big part of a kind of like, again, you're privileged in a missionary context. But I, the times that I was able to do that, I had either in the half hour before as part of like a retreat talk or in weeks before as part of like an ongoing kind of class relationship, I was able to lay out the basic gospel message. Like, God loves you. You were made for a relationship with him and with other people, uh, but sin screwed that up. And that sin is isolating you from him and from everybody else. And if you don't find find a way to deal with it, it it's going to isolate you from him and everyone else for eternity. But there is a solution in Jesus, in the cross. What are you going to do? Are you going to let him restore you? Um, and I would sometimes, you know, like, are you going to hand him the keys? There were different metaphors for decision, but it is the, John Paul II says, it is the hinge on which all evangelization turns, a clear, succinct expression of the gospel and a call to conversion so that people can make a decision. Yeah. And I ask 
also just as a reiteration, because the reason I'm talking about the left side of the thresholds is because I am good at winning trust, at being with people in those deep moments of openness, of answering questions and seeking, but I've never really been privileged Mm. beyond that. I've invited people to come on retreats or whatever that have given them those moments, but that's this is the point where I would probably hand them off to someone like Jim and just say, not that I'm afraid to speak the Krigman to their lives. I just tend to spend more of my time with getting through those first two proclamations of the Krigman. God is present in my life and he has a plan for me. And I usually get that far. And then they don't want to know a whole lot more, you know. I mean, we referenced earlier, right? Evangelization is really a, a communal or a team sport because if you're the guy who gives the come to Jesus talk at the retreat, but the Whitney's don't bring anybody to the retreat, not a lot happens, right? And I mean, I'm a natural, I think people can, I'm a natural extrovert. And I have been blessed to be able to walk with some people through the building of trust and openness and seeking. But for the most part, the Lord really likes to use me in what we kind of call the right side. The the mental image here is kind of like, yeah, on the far left, you have people in trust and they're moving a little bit to the right to openness and then to seeking and then kind of right in the center of this conversion process, the hinge that all of it turns on is this conversion moment of decision. The Lord tends to use me decision and following as people are growing and developing as disciples. And it's not that I haven't experienced the other, but like, that's kind of my sweet spot. Let's, so I think it's my turn to ask yeah, you, Jim. Let's talk about what happens the after first, somebody gets, makes a decision for Jesus. Yeah. The first threshold is beginning disciple. What can you tell me about that? Well, okay. So a beginning disciple, and I just might point out, like, you really shouldn't call somebody a disciple until they've made a decision for Jesus. A beginning disciple is a person who is committed to following Jesus by turning away from sin and by making any sacrifice in order to personally grow and live the habits of the Christian life. And what does that look and sound like in real life? These are the people that are hungry to learn, right? They're the people who like enthusiastically come to stuff that they want to know about their faith. They're like, would you teach me how to pray the rosary, rosary, or like, oh, cool, where did you get that book? Or like, they just, there's a hunger there and there's a desire. And they're the people that they're like, yeah, I'll take off work to do that. Mm-hmm. Like there's just, there's a desire there, which as a side note, if you find yourself trying to form someone as a disciple, trying to teach them about what it means to follow Jesus, and they're just not interested, maybe you need to like stop and, you know, return to go and realize, oh, maybe they haven't made a decision yet. Because for people who have made a decision, who have really kind of, you know, to use the fishing metaphor from the gospels, who've dropped their nets, you know, who've like, all right, I am all in, I will follow him. You can see it by the enthusiasm in their life. So if there was mm-hmm. one word, it's enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, the desire is there and it's clear and they're messy. They're not a finished product like any of us is, but there's desire and there's movement and there's growth and there's interest and, yeah. and it's just fun. Well, and I like that you bring up that return to go Go back to the the decision because sometimes you're not wrong that this person is a beginning disciple, mm. but this is not a perfectly linear process. I know that some days I'm like, I'm supposed to be a missionary or a fruitful disciple, and I just need to make a decision for Jesus today because it's, it's feeling rough. And so yes. I just need to make a choice for him. 
And that's where I start some days. Yeah. Yeah. This process of conversion and growth and discipleship is a process and we're human. Sometimes we we take two steps forward and one steps one step back. Sometimes we take three steps back. And there's this, you know, you can think of it maybe even as a as a spiral a staircase that you see in the gospels, just referencing the life of St. Peter, you see repeated decisions right? And conversion moments, you know, from the the first time he's like, oh, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. The first time he decides to follow Jesus to, you know, the, the time when he is then recommissioned on the beach after his betrayal to the famous non-gospel story, you know, Quo Vadis, Lord, where are you going? You know, Jesus meets him on the road to Rome. He's like, well, Jesus, like, I'm, I'm going back to to be crucified again. And Peter recognizes this is his own call to embrace his cross. You see this in the lives of all the great saints, that there is a deepening and repetition of these themes. Mm. I love that. So that's a really good point because I'm often drawn to Paul, who is very seemingly linear in his, once he's knocked to the ground, he's like gung-ho. But then he argues with Peter and says, yeah. you know, why are you not sticking to the things that Jesus taught you? Like, yeah. Why are you refusing to eat with these people? Oh, yeah. There is all, I mean, it's, it, it is fun to see. And I, mean, I think that's why the authors of scripture and good writings of the saints don't airbrush the saint. And you see this ongoing conversion process through their life yeah. and their growth as disciples. I love that. <laughs> okay. So what's next? We've got beginning, beginning disciple. And then a missionary disciple. Why don't you give us the definition? Okay. So a missionary disciple, which again is a relatively new term in the church. Thank you, Pope Francis. A missionary disciple is a person who has decided to personally answer the call to take part in the mission of the church by sharing the good news. And again, if there was one word I'd highlight there, it's a personal thing. And I mean that in two sense. One, that's like, no, it's not just like, I affirm it is the church's job to evangelize the world. But it's like, no, I affirm that it's my job to evangelize at least my part of the world. But it's also personal in the sense that like, it fits you. That there's a recognition that the Lord has called me to be a missionary to my coworkers and my own children and my fallen away family members and my neighbors. And that there is a, there's a sense of personal calling that Jesus is inviting me into his mission and it fits me. Mm. So you mean I don't have to drop everything and move to Africa or go start knocking on doors during my free time on the weekend? No. I mean, maybe talk to, talk to Jesus about that. But no, I mean, there is a, there's an ordinary mission field that, you know, uh, Pope Francis in uh, his Joy of the Gospel letter, he talks about how there's an ordinary preaching that all of us are called to. And when he begins to explain it, he's just talking about like the way we interact with the people in our lives, the love and hope that we explicitly share that's our form of preaching and missionary work. I don't know what to say other than it just, it fits us. Mm -hmm. It's not something, and that is incidentally, kind of how you know that you're in that, that you're in the right space, because it feels like it fits. Not that there isn't maybe a little bit of comfort level stretching or fear, but it does fit. So I think you're already starting to answer one of my questions, but how do I discern that missionary field? Missionary disciples are first and foremost disciples, and so they have a relationship of prayer with the Lord. So 
the foundation of kind of beginning to recognize your mission field. You know, is it my neighbors or my coworkers or who in particular? I think it's two things. It's one, who are you putting in my life and how do you want me to love them? Right. How do you want me to share? And then I think it is this kind of mental framework, a recognition that I want to meet them where they're at, but recognizing that not everybody is ready for Catholic radio. Not everybody is ready for the Matthew Kelly book. Just recognizing the process uh, and, and where people are at allows us to authentically meet them where they're at and then help them move to the next stage of their journey. And sometimes it's a grow-as-you-go sort of thing when you just wade into it with whoever's in your vicinity, whoever God gives you, you start to learn what you're particularly good at. Yeah, and it, and it tends to grow us too. I can tell you how many people who it is their love for someone that the Lord has put in their life and their their commitment to be like to embody God's love for this person that fuels their own growth in knowledge, in patience, in courage, whatever. Okay, so we have one final threshold, and that's fruitful disciple. Fruitful disciple. This is in some ways maybe the most intuitive, but it's it's often the hardest because it's often not something we experience. So a fruitful disciple is a person who is fully equipped for a lifelong Catholic mission, and they make any sacrifice to help another person grow spiritually. So I'll give maybe an example here. This is someone who has developed a friendship with their neighbor and they're like, I've been a Royals fan all my life and my neighbor's a Cardinals fan. Like they're like, okay, I, I would prefer to go fishing on the weekend. I'd prefer to watch the Royals, but like I'm like willing to set my preferences aside to be present to this person, right? To engage with them. You know, I'm willing to take the time to read and study. It's like, yeah, I've been on that retreat and I loved it. I don't need that retreat myself, but I'm going to go again because I know my friend will never go if I'm not sitting there right next to him. Like that's the type of just little examples of the type of sacrifice that a fruitful disciple makes. They're willing to make any sacrifice to help another person grow and, right, implicit in the name, and it actually works. They actually bear fruit. So in all humility, a fruitful disciple has individuals in their life who can say, you know, I don't know where I would be in my faith if it wasn't for you. You know, and and oftentimes that honor is formal where someone invite you to be their sponsor in RCIA or, you know, for some other occasion. But oftentimes it's just this deep recognition that your presence in their life, your explicit witness, your whatever, again, however God used you in their journey, they are the fruit of your labors. When St. Paul, again, classic missionary talk, he's, he's writing, you know, to all of the, his letters, particularly Philippians, he's like, you're, you're my fruit. Like, you're the fruit of my labors. Like, you know, he's already imagining the conversation he gets to have with the Lord. And it's like, this is what my labor has earned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at least in my life, these people sometimes become your closest friends and then they become your community that you invite other people into. So Whitney, this is just a little teaser. We, we alluded to this, but we developed a whole game for develop you know for the thresholds of conversion and discipleship basically you know we we developed these character cards 
so that you get to read Bill's story and how, you know, Bill cancels his normal weekend plans to go fishing with his buddy, even though Bill hates fishing, because his buddy wants to share his faith with his non-Christian fishing buddies. And so Bill decides to go with him. Yeah, you know, and you get to hear Bill's story. And Bill's an example of a, you know, of a of a truly missionary disciple. Or, you know, Dan, who grew up Catholic but hasn't been in the church for many, many years, but he still has some fond memories. We share these stories, and then it's this little game where people begin to kind of like, okay, well, where are they at in the thresholds? And it's a really just a fun, easy way to give people one, a common language for what we mean by evangelization. So that we're not, you know, when one person's talking about evangelization and they're thinking hospitality and the other person is thinking form.org and awesome apologetics, it, it gives us a common language for what part of the process we're talking about. And it gives us this kind of very personal, individualized awareness, a mental framework for how to recognize where people are at and truly meet them where they're at. So Whitney, if somebody wants to do this, where do they get it? I will like, link I, it in the I show notes. I want to play this game. <laughs> I'll link it in the show notes on equip.archomaha.org. And I would also encourage if you just feel uncomfortable or don't know how to like need some help thinking through, walking through the game, all of the coaches of the parish support team are available to you. You respond to any of those uh, Flacno emails that come out, and mm -hmm. I will make sure that you get a good answer and are connected with someone who can help you think through what to do next. Yeah, it really is. You'll find in the, the handout there everything you need to play the game, the uh, thresholds, the definitions, the little character cards are all there. You know, suggestions, get some snacks and, and beer. And this is this is a great thing for a family, pastoral council, youth ministry team, an evangelization team. This is a great way. Just takes about an hour. It sparks awesome conversations and really helps, yeah, can help you realize like, wow, that's why we're missing the kids at this stage. And it can be a fantastic tool for a group of people who are dedicated to mission to develop a common language and a common framework for uh, evangelizing at every stage of the journey. Whitney, thank you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for sharing your stories and walking through. Anytime. I guess I'm with you every week as it is. That's so. true. But now we now we turn the we turn the microphone on for you. Yep. All right, everybody. So if you want the uh, thresholds game, go to the show notes, equip.archomaha.org. There you can find an English and Spanish version. And if you know somebody that, that needs to hear this podcast, wait till you're done driving or done walking the dog and go ahead and share it out with a friend. Thanks, everybody. Mm -hmm.